We are in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, 43 to 65 today. Uh, this message is housed within a series entitled, Don't Miss Him. We don't want to miss Jesus this Easter season. This particular message is entitled, Discipleship Under Pressure. Have you ever had to answer a question under pressure? Responding to uncomfortable questions often begins early in life. Um, Maybe you remember taking a candy when you should not have, and your parent asked you, do you have a candy in your mouth? And it's sitting on the side of your mouth, you're not sure, what are the consequences? What do I say? Maybe you were speeding lately, and a police officer stopped you and asked you, were you speeding? Well, it's open to interpretation. How we answer depends on our maturity, our character, our self-understanding. Am I a person that speaks the truth, a person of integrity? What are my values? What are the non-negotiables in life? Am I secure in my identity as a person? All of these things come into play. Whether we like it or not, in society, we are forced to position ourselves. Even when we're ambivalent, neutral, we're positioning ourselves. Sometimes we find it difficult to stand for something or someone when under pressure. The main point of this message is that being a disciple is about being faithful to Jesus under pressure. What does that look like? Well, I believe today's text will help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word, your revelation to us. And we thank you that we can gather in freedom to study it. And Lord, again, we just ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to reveal your truth to us. It's your word, Lord, that encourages your people, that builds them up, that spurs them on. And I pray that nothing I say would detract from your word or betray your word. May I be faithful to your word. May your word remain with your people for their strengthening. And Lord, we just entrust ourselves to you. We ask you, Jesus, to teach us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark. He was a close associate of Peter, and so we have in this gospel many of the recollections of Peter written in Rome, probably around AD 55, while Nero was emperor of Rome. The way that Mark writes the gospel tells us that he wants the disciples in Rome, the early church, that fledgling church, to understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. The big question of the gospel is, what does it look like to be a disciple? Mark 14 to 16 narrates the Passion Week. And you'll remember that in chapter 14, it begins with Mary breaking an alabaster jar over the head of Jesus, just pouring out her life savings out of devotion to Jesus. And that extravagant event, that extravagant action, it's bracketed by the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus. And then right after she pours out that oil, what happens? Judas betrays Jesus, acts as an accomplice to the chief priests and scribes. Then later we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pouring his heart out to the Father. And just before that passage about Jesus pouring out his heart to the Father, we see that Jesus foretells the 
what Peter would do, that he would deny Jesus three times. And right after Jesus pours out his heart to the Father, Judas betrays Jesus. And so, in this story, in this narrative around the Passion Week, the crucifixion of Christ, we see that people have different perspectives. They're responding in different ways. What does it look like to be a disciple when you're under pressure? In both episodes, the disciples seem to be rather unaware, rather sleepy, rather distracted. Verse 41 of chapter 14, Jesus says the following to his disciples, are you still sleeping? This is in the garden. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his suffering has come. And then verse 43, the text for today. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed with him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In these verses, the word seize appears over and over again. There's this faceless mob intent on seizing Jesus. The only two people named in these verses are Judas and Jesus, this final fateful meeting between them. Even the sword-wielding sympathizer is not named. And there's that naked man that is unnamed. Judas is described as one of the twelve. The betrayal will come from the intimacy of Jesus' closest disciples. There's a crowd with swords and clubs. These are the armed temple police sent by the chief priests and scribes and elders, by the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. The chief priests would have been made up of the ruling chief priest, Caiaphas, and former chief priests. The elders were wealthy laymen, many of them landowners, Sadducees. And the scribes were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. So this is the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 men. 70 men plus the high priest, 71. Why was there this Sanhedrin? Well, the Romans were smart. They knew that observant Jews were rather rebellious. And so they created this buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish people. They had jurisdiction in religious matters, partial freedom in political matters. They were to cooperate with the interests of Rome. Mark's point here is that Jesus' arrest, it actually comes from, it's instigated by, it's orchestrated by the Jewish council. They authorized the temple police. Why did they need Judas? Well, Judas, he understood the patterns of Jesus, his movements. He knew where Jesus might be on a cold spring night with his disciples, away from the crowds. They needed to receive that information from Judas. He is their accomplice. The word signal there is that word only appears in this passage in the New Testament. No other passage. It means an agreed-upon signal. Judas uses the familiar action of respect and friendship. He comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, and then gives him a kiss. And it's the kiss that would indicate friendship, affection. 
That's the pain of betrayal. Judas doesn't come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'm betraying you. (laughs) Mary, she took that alabaster flask, poured it all over you, spilled out her life savings because of her devotion to you. But me, I sold you for 30 pieces of silver. I didn't think you were worth that. Doesn't speak that way. No, he comes with affection. He comes with the embrace of friendship, rabbi, respect. That's the way betrayal happens. First point, disciples know that betrayal is part of the journey. (laughs) That's a hard truth. But not everyone that begins with Jesus will remain faithful to him. Not all of our brothers and sisters, at least those that say that they are brothers and sisters, will remain faithful to Jesus and to us. Betrayal is part of the journey. Listen to David, Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. And so David is remembering a fellow worshiper, a friend who has betrayed him. Jesus was betrayed. And we will be. But we need to follow the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. He forgives his enemies. He loves them to the end. That's our calling. We are not to walk with swords drawn. We are to forgive, to love our enemies. That's the way of discipleship. When Jesus sees someone pulls the sword impulsively and cuts off the right ear of the chief priest's servant. That's Peter, according to John 18. Peter draws the sword, and he cuts off the right ear of Malchus. What does Jesus do? He stops Peter, and he heals the ear. There's a mob that has come to get him, but his willful surrender deflates all of the anger of the mob. Why have they come to arrest him? He asks that question. He's being arrested as if he was a political rebel, as if he were a criminal, a robber. Why haven't they arrested him in the temple, in the public places? But then he remembers that the scriptures are being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12. He'll be numbered among transgressors. All the disciples abandon him. They all leave him. Remember, they all drank from the cup. They all pledged to be loyal. And they all run. The betrayal of Judas is just multiplied by the wholesale failure of the disciples. Again, Jesus had predicted their falling. In verse 27, he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then there's this anonymous young man who's a streaker. The first streaker recorded in history, right in the Bible. Some people wonder whether he might not have been John Mark, a way for John Mark to include himself in the gospel, in his own betrayal of Jesus. We're not sure, and speculation about it is really futile. It's more what the young man represents. That word young man in, in uh, the Greek Old Testament in Jewish literature, it always refers to a valiant, brave, wise, strong young man. A man who should be able to stand. And I believe there's an allusion here to Amos chapter 2, 
uh, verse 16, which says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. And so a time will come, a time of crisis, when not even the bravest will stand. In verse 50, the emphasis on all of them leaving him and fleeing. And so the young man just represents our tendency to flee under pressure, to not be brave. And those in Rome need to be aware of their weakness, and so do we. See, the first readers in Rome were facing persecution. Nero was not favorable toward the church. Would they run? Would they run and hide? Would they run away naked? Would they deny Jesus? Would they leave their brothers and sisters behind, or worse, betray them? The word all appears three times in this text. All fled, all came together, all condemned Jesus. We're just reminded, we are sinners saved by grace. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23. And we only remain faithful by God's grace. And as disciples, we need to walk with an awareness of that. If we spend time in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that quiet, safe place before the Father, we'll remember that. And it'll enable us to stand in the heat of, Pharaoh, of the chief priest's courtyard. That highlights the importance of being in the presence of God. Martin Luther, he'd pray this prayer before preaching. Oh Lord, you see how unworthy I am to fill so great and important an office. Were it not for your counsel, I would, I would have utterly failed in it long ago. Therefore, I call upon you for guidance. Gladly indeed will I give my heart and my voice to this service. I want to teach the people. I myself want constantly to seek and study your word and eagerly meditate upon it. Use me as your instrument. Only, dear Lord, do not forsake me, for if I'm left alone, I will most certainly ruin everything. Amen. That's true for me, and it's true for any preacher who might step in this pulpit. May we walk with that perspective in humility before God, realizing that we only remain faithful by God's grace. Amen. Second point, disciples are aware of their own weakness under pressure. And so we don't overestimate our ability to follow. We're vigilant. We stay awake. We spend time in Gethsemane. Sleepy Christians don't spend a lot of time in prayer. And when the heat comes, they fall. Reading on in verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. 
Peter's following at a distance. There's a gap in his discipleship. In verse 31, he has said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He says it emphatically. The story of Peter in the courtyard, it brackets Jesus' trial here. He floats into the courtyard, stays at a distance, worms himself at the fire with the henchmen that have just arrested Jesus. Jesus is at trial, and then right after the trial, Peter denies him three times in verses 66 to 72. Repeating number two, disciples are aware of their own weakness under pressure. And if they haven't spent time in the quiet place, the safe place, in the presence of the Father, in Gethsemane, they will not stand in the heat of Pharaoh, of the chief priest's courtyard. Jesus is ushered into the presence of the high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, he presided over this Jewish council for 18, 19 years, from the year 18 to 36. He was an able leader, an able diplomat. Most chief priests served for only about four years. The council's not meeting in the normal meeting place. The normal meeting place for this council was the chamber of hewn stone, which was just north of the temple sanctuary. They meet in the home of Caiaphas, which is about a kilometer southwest of Gethsemane. Why? Well, they're taking Jesus by stealth. They don't want the crowds to know what's going on. They were a group of 71, but they only needed about 23 for quorum, and so they could do that in the home of Caiaphas. In the passage, the word witness appears seven times. The nature of witnessing is a key theme here. In verses 55 to 59, false testimonies are being given that says that the Sanhedrin is seeking testimony against Jesus. They are driving for a a verdict. They want to condemn him. Many bear false witness, but the witnesses don't line up. They contradict each other, and they need witnesses that corroborate in order to make a formal charge. The only charge that's recorded by Mark is in verse 58. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. For this Jewish audience, that would be a serious charge because the temple was at the center of Judaism. It was at the center of their worship. It was the seat of the Sanhedrin's power. They needed the temple. Jesus had no intention of actually physically dismantling the temple. That was not his plan. But he did speak about its judgment in chapter 13, 1 and 2. He talks about this temple, this religious system coming under the judgment of God. When he spoke of destroying the temple made with hands, he referred to his own body not made with hands. Remember Daniel chapter 2. He's that stone cut not by human hands that is hurled and brings the statue down. So what Jesus wants his disciples to know when he makes that statement in Mark and what the readers in Rome need to understand is that they don't need the temple in Jerusalem to follow Jesus. What they need to understand was that Jesus was raised from the dead and he opened the way to the Father and that there's no need for temple. But if they want to be in the presence of the Father, they can enter the presence of the Father through Jesus, wherever they are, in the heat of Rome. They need to understand what it means to walk in the Father's presence. Nearly every detail in this trial breaks the rules for capital cases. These rules were written down in the Mishnah, which was a commentary on the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. And so some of the rules were the following. For example, a trial for a capital case was not to be held on the eve of Sabbath or the eve of a festival. It was happening. The trials were to be held during the daytime, not at night. 
This was obviously at night. If the Sanhedrin was to gather for such a trial, it was to happen in the chamber of hewn stone. It's happening in the home of Caiaphas. See, Jesus has been incriminated here prior to the hearing. The evidence is pressed against him. They're driving for a verdict. They have an outcome that they're working toward. You observe the, the mob think, right? The group think. You ever been in that kind of a situation where everyone is thinking the same way and you feel pressured to conform, to think the way everyone else does? to do what everyone else is asking you to do. And if we're sleeping, if we haven't spent time with the Father, we'll conform. Third point, disciples witness to Jesus in the midst of collective opposition and suffering. There always will be collective opposition to Jesus and suffering when we witness faithfully to Jesus. That happened in Jerusalem, it happened in Rome, it happens in our day. I was in Cuba last week, and one of the things I observed about Cuba is that there is a way of thinking that the government encourages. (laughs) There's not a lot of marketing. If you're looking for a restaurant or a barber shop or whatever it is, there's only a little plaque. There are no big signs lit up. There are big billboards in the cities and on the highways. They're all about Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. (laughs) Be faithful to the revolution. (laughs) Fight the good fight. March on. Every Cuban is to think in the same way. There's pressure. One in 20 is an informant. And so if you are a part of a church, you're not sure who the informants are. You're not sure who you can trust. What do you do in that kind of a situation? Do you conform? 2002, some of the leaders began to dream about evangelizing Cuba. The church in Cuba really began to grow exponentially in the 90s. And they were thinking about, okay, how do we do evangelization big time in Cuba? So they thought of inviting Billy Graham to come do a crusade in Havana, but soon realized that that was never going to happen. They did write to the Billy Graham Association, and they asked for some ideas. And what they decided to do was to prepare a DVD, a DVD with some testimonies of Cubans that had come to faith, some Cuban worship songs, a clear gospel presentation, and discipleship materials. They went to Mexico to get that done, came back with all of these DVDs, contacted all of the leaders of denominations across Cuba. There are many uh, churches, but most of the believers gather in house churches. How would they pull this off? Well, they didn't want the authorities to find out They didn't want it to be, uh, you know, stopped halfway. And so they secretly delivered the DVDs across the nation. They all agreed that the Cuban believers, they would invite friends and family to hear the worship songs, to hear the gospel presentation at a set time across the country. So the day came, friends, neighbors gathered, they presented the gospel And in one day, over 65,000 Cubans came to faith in Jesus. The Cuban leader that told me that story says, I don't think any Billy Graham crusade has seen that kind of result in one day. Amazing. But there they are in the face of opposition, collective opposition, government opposition, suffering, and the faithful church finds a way to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. I was so challenged by what I heard, and I asked myself, what would it look like for us at Willingdon to courageously proclaim the gospel in our day? 
So often when there's opposition, a bit of suffering, we cower. We go silent. We get politically correct. Jesus is being accused of all kinds of things here. He remains silent, doesn't respond to the false accusations. It reminds us of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Scriptures being fulfilled. His silence, though, it complicates the task of the, of the high priest because he needs some reason to bring this thing to a verdict. And Jesus is silent. So he shifts in his role. He becomes the prosecutor. And he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The question in in the original is actually a statement. A a question is intended, but it's actually a statement. And these words on the lips of the chief priest are actually the, the clearest confession in all of Mark of who Jesus is. Almost the same thing is said by the Roman centurion at the cross in 1539. Fascinating. The blessed refers to God. So what what the high priest is is actually asking Jesus is, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, or not? And to that question, that clear question, Jesus says, I am. (laughs) I am. He states it categorically. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power in the place of highest honor, Power is a synonym for the Almighty One. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to be at the right hand of God. I am God. I am divine. And you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. I will return to judge and to establish my reign. Clear, clear affirmation. Why does Mark present Jesus in this way? Well, first of all, the disciples in Rome need to know who Jesus is. They need to know who he is. And they need to know what it means to confess Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, Lord. Fourth point, disciples courageously identify themselves by confessing Jesus is the Son of God. That separated people in the first century from the rest. It separated those in Rome from the others. And it separates us from those that do not follow Jesus. We need to know what that means. You see, in the first century, Caesar Augustus, And Caesars after him were saying, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Savior. I'm the Lord. I'm the one that brings peace. Caesars said that about themselves. And when the disciples in Rome said, no, Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. They were offending everyone around them. And for that confession, many of them lost their lives. So the disciples in Rome They need to know what it means to make that confession. Jesus stood firm before the council, the chief priests, the scribes, the mob, Pilate, because he'd been with the Father. He knew his origin. He knew his nature. He knew his purpose. And the question for the disciples in Rome and for us is, do we know? Do we know our origin? That we've been born of God? That we're sons and daughters of the King? Do we know our nature? That the Holy Spirit lives within us? Do we know our purpose to testify to who Jesus is? The high priest tears his garments. Blasphemy. Jesus claimed it actually seals his fate before the Sanhedrin. It's a mockery, according to them. Utmost irreverence. And the verdict demands the death penalty. Stoning. 
all condemn him. In their minds, Jesus cannot be speaking the truth. He can't be. There's no way that the Father will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. And then in verse 65, the physical mistreatment begins. They spit on him. They cover his face. They strike him. They ask him to prophesy. What are they doing? Well, there was this old interpretation of Isaiah chapter 11 that the Messiah would be able to discern who was striking him by the sense of smell. And so they cover his face. They blindfold him and strike him and say, prophesy, tell us who is striking you. Tremendous injustice. Disciples remained faithful in the midst of injustice and profound ironies. That's the fifth point. There's a lot of injustice in life. There are many ironies. And on this trial here, there are many ironies. For example, the grounds for the arrest of Jesus. The Sanhedrin is looking for this from the false testimonies, but the one who actually seals his fate is Jesus himself. It's his confession, (laughs) to be the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Another irony is that the Sanhedrin mocks his gift of prophecy, but while they do that, they're actually fulfilling all of the prophecies of Jesus. The Sanhedrin claims to stand on the law, but the one who actually upholds the law and fulfills it is Jesus. Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin, But when he returns as the Son of Man, as judge, he will judge every member of the Sanhedrin. And the greatest irony is that Jesus is being accused of blasphemy. But the one who is truly guilty of blasphemy in this text is the chief priest because he curses God's Son. Things are often not what they appear to be. Jesus will die for these betrayers. He will forgive them from the cross. They don't know what they're doing. He shows us what it means to love our enemies. He knows his origin, his nature, his purpose. He's faithful to the end, even in the midst of injustice and an irony. Again, I was inspired by a Cuban pastor couple last last Sunday. Uh, We were in a house church, and uh, what that means is that there's a house on the property because there was this fairly large covered area behind the house and uh, where the church gathered, about 150 people sitting in chairs, wonderful worship time. And I asked the pastor, so, so what is this here? What do you call this? He says, this is my garage. <laughs> That's a big garage. I said, how big can this garage get? He says, oh, we can knock down the house and go all the way to the road. <laughs> Smiled. The location for this church, it was the center for Santeria. Santeria is Cuban black magic. Um, This pastor couple, they felt led by the Holy Spirit to start a church in that place. They bought the property. There were sacred trees on the property. They bought it anyways and started to call people to faith. Church grew. There was some opposition to what they were doing from neighbors, The church grew to such a size that they needed to cut one of the sacred trees down. See, trees are sacred in Santeria because that's where you practice the rituals and you believe that there's life in the tree. They cut it down. Neighbors were gathered around the property to watch them die. They believed that anybody that would cut the tree down would die. They didn't. They lived. 
You see, this couple called by the Holy Spirit, dedicated to the tree of life, Jesus, they were bringing words of life and loving those people that were actually enemies of the cross. You know, they never spoke against Santeria. In fact, the pastor said, you know, in our messages, we never preach against Santeria. We believe that we have come to love even those that are enemies of the cross. When the church gathered for a party and there was food left over, they'd always take it to the neighbors, just loving you know what percentage of the congregation is from Santeria, former practitioners of Santeria? 80%. God doing a miracle in the face of opposition, of hostility, not only from the practitioners of Santeria, but from government authorities. Government authorities appeared there recently and they wanted to shut the place down. <laughs> you know who defended the pastoral couple in the church? The neighbors. <laughs> Do we know how to stand in the face of opposition? Or do we get quiet when we face opposition? Do we know how to stand in the face of injustice? There are many ironies in life. Sometimes we get confused by what's going on. Do we know who Jesus is, that he is the son of the blessed one, the one who came to save us? Are we able to believe God to do the miraculous when everything around us would seem to be working against us? Do we know what it means to stand? Have we spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, understanding the heart of the Father, hearing his orders for our lives? Are we able to walk forward from the presence of the Father with courage, with the vision that he has for people that are far from him? What would it look like for the Lord to accomplish his purposes in the midst of the injustices and ironies of Metro Vancouver? May God guide us. Last point. Disciples know that God is fulfilling his word and accomplishing his purposes. Jesus is on trial. But the word of God is being fulfilled over and over and over again. Isaiah 53, 7. 53, 12. Isaiah 56. Zechariah 13, 7. Over and over again, the word of God is being fulfilled as Jesus goes to trial. God is still in control. Jesus' own prophecies are being fulfilled. Mark 9, 31. Mark 10, 33 and 34. Mark 14, 27. Over and over again, the word of God being fulfilled. It looks like it's all out of control, that the Sanhedrin has won the day, that Jesus will be crucified and it'll be all over. But Father has his hand on Jesus. And Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And he will rise from the dead to reign forevermore. And he will judge the earth. Do we understand that? Are we grounded in who Jesus is? Sometimes we face injustice. We suffer. There are ironies. But if we spend time in the presence of the Father... The Father will grant us understanding. Jesus will reveal the heart of the Father to us, fill us with his spirit, and we will walk forward with courage to do the things that God has called us to do. Because in our lives, God wants to fulfill his word and accomplish his purposes. Amen? Amen. May we be faithful. Let's stand to pray. So, Father, we are humbled by the example of our Cuban brothers and sisters. We're humbled by your faithfulness, Jesus, and we realize that we are weak. And so, God, may we be a people that spends time in your presence. May we be a people that prays. May we be a people that 
just desires to know you, Jesus, and to walk in the fullness of your spirit. Oh God, as we go from this place, as we live this week, may we walk with our eyes fixed on you. May we lay aside everything that entangles us. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. May we walk forward with joy for the joy set before us, for your glory, for your kingdom. May we see the impossible happen because of who you are, Jesus. Thank you that you can bring to life things that are dead. Thank you that you can call into existence things that have never existed. Oh God, fill us with faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your hand on this church. Thank you for the plans that you have, the purposes, the good plans that you have for Willingdon. May we embrace them for your glory. And may not, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.